Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Adam Wright to the show. A mechanical engineer by training, Adam is a seasoned management executive with over 15 years experience building and growing companies across a variety of fields, including 3D printing, ocean engineering, real estate, and Bitcoin mining. Prior to co-founding Vespine Energy in 2022, Adam was Director of Manufacturing for Mantle Inc., a 3D printing company developing a new way to print high-precision metal components. Adam also spent six years as CEO of Deep Flight, a marine technology manufacturer that, under Adam's leadership, expanded to become a global provider of personal and tourism submarines. Adam, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you, Raj? Adam, I'm doing fantastic. And I have to kick off the show with this question that my 11-year-old asked me to ask you about. Tell me about your experience with personal submarines. <laughs> I was hoping you'd ask that. Um, yeah, my, so my background is primarily in ocean engineering. I have a degree in mechanical, but with, a, with an ocean's focus. And um, for about 15 years, I was uh, designing submarines, uh, personal submarines for recreation and tourism. Um, later went on to, um, to found and, and I was the CEO of a company called Deep Flight, which was again dedicated to personal subs um, for, for tourism, recreation, but also to spread awareness about ocean conservation. Um, it was a really exciting and I was very passionate about the, the project. Um, however, you know, submarines has a fairly small uh, market uh, accessibility. So <laughs> um, it was a great project while, while, it, while it lasted. And I think it was, um, you know, a great way to catapult me into my, uh, some of my other things in my career. So tell me some things about personal submarines that we might not know. Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, a personal submarine, um, can take, can take many forms. I think that, you know, a traditional, you know, the way that we at, at deep flight, my previous company, the way that we went about personal submarines was looking at the ocean as a, uh, as a wilderness rather than an aquarium. So, you know, in a typical type of submarine, you would sort of descend and, you know, you would be very immobile. You wouldn't be able to move very fast. And so you're looking at the ocean as a fairly, you know, the ocean is a fairly poor, poorly stocked aquarium. It's just a huge place. The submarines that we built were fast and nimble and they, they, um, they were built much more like airplanes rather than blimps. And so therefore you can actually, you know, get to where you want to go underwater at a very rapid pace. And so you can, you can view the underwater ecosystem as a, as a wilderness and you can, you can fly through canyons and you can, you know, uh, keep up with marine mammals. Um, so it was a kind of a, a very different and exhilarating experience. Now, according to my research, you had some interactions with some pretty well-known names that were in the personal submarine market. Yes, that's true. We we had some fairly notable clients. The the CEO or the founder of Red Bull, um, Richard Branson of of Virgin, um, and um, a venture capitalist named uh, Tom Perkins, who was the founder of Kleiner Perkins. Um, they were all submarine enthusiasts and uh, you know former clients of ours. And. Just out of curiosity, in case my 11-year-old asked me, what's the price point for a personal submarine? <laughs> uh, depends on how, how big you want. Um, ours were um, anywhere from two to three passenger, and price point would be two to three million dollars approximately. That's an interesting price point for yeah. a luxury, ve <laughs> luxury vehicle, right? That's right, yes. So from submarines to Bitcoin mining, 
Can you give us an overview of Vespine Energy and your role at the organization? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think before before I get into Vespine Energy specifically, I wanted to kind of address the from a high level view what is what is the problem that we're addressing. So, you know, we're Vespine Energy is primarily a uh, a methane mitigation company, um, but also a renewable energy developer. So we we view methane emissions as one of the biggest problems that's affecting humanity today. Um, and you know, as we know, as we know, methane is a very strong greenhouse gas. Um, it's anywhere from twenty five to eighty four times stronger than CO two, depending on your time preference. So tracking down and mitigating methane emissions is you know one of the the strongest levers that we have to slow climate change. And a large percentage of those emissions come from man-made sources and in particular landfills. So if we, if we look at data from, uh, from the U.S., uh, the EPA estimates that landfills um, account for about 17% of national or U.S. methane emissions. Um, but that's based on, you know, self-reported data that's coming from the landfill itself and, uh, and not based on actual measurement. And so there was a, an aerial and satellite survey that was done in 2019 in partnership with NASA um, that actually showed that reported data was, uh, in fact, underestimated by a factor of anywhere from two to three X. And so that makes, you know, landfills potentially the largest contributor to methane emissions. And so if we look at kind of the current landscape uh, of, of landfills and what types of projects that can can run and utilize this, this methane, you know, methane is obviously also a, a power source or a, a form of energy. Um, there's basically two types of projects that you can, um, that you can run on a, on a landfill. One is a, a power plant. So you essentially combust that methane, you put it into a power plant, and then you, uh, you know, export that energy to the grid via transmission lines, or you refine that gas, uh, that landfill gas into pipeline quality natural gas, which means you have to remove a lot of the impurities, you have to compress it to a very high pressure, and then you have to inject it into a pipeline or use it as a vehicle fuel. So, you know, both of these projects, uh, you know, both of these projects require the the export of, of some type of commodity. So whether it be uh, electricity in the form of electrons or gas in the form of molecules, and this export of, of the, this export requires infrastructure. So you need a you know you need a pipeline to carry the gas away from the site to the end user, or you need power transmission to uh, transport those electrons again to the end user. And so you know the U.S. the U.S. alone has about twenty six hundred municipal solid waste landfills, and even more if you consider you know industrial and construction landfills. Um, so these landfills are very remote, you know, they're, they're very distributed. So uh, only about 28% of those landfills are either large enough or close enough into existing infrastructure to make a traditional project financially viable. And so this, this leaves about 2000 landfills in the US with no viable use for their methane emissions, and they either flare it off if they're forced to by regulators, or they freely vent it into the atmosphere, right. And so both are Obviously, you know, one is a financial liability and the other is a, a, a environmental liability. And so here's where Vespian Energy comes in. So we work with all of with, with these smaller and medium sized landfills in more rural areas or remote locations. And we help them transform methane emissions into from an economic or environmental liability into an, an asset. And we do that by constructing what we call self-sustaining microgrids. So a self-sustaining microgrid is basically, you know, on-site electric generation that's paired and co-located with an interruptible data processing load. And so in this way, we're able to bring the user of the energy onto the site right next to the generation, the generation of that energy. And we're able to place financial value on methane emissions without requiring any grid or pipeline connection. And so in other words, we, we sell data instead of, instead of selling uh, electrons or molecules. And so today, <clears throat> you know, by far the best and most scalable form of data processing 
that's widely commoditized is in, is in fact Bitcoin mining. And so once we you know once we have that site electrified with by virtue of, of Bitcoin mining, uh, the the mining actually becomes a tool in order to enable other uses on the site, including fleet electrification. And we can kind of get into more of that later. But that's basically the the, the summary is that you know we're 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 a methane mitigation company and a uh, renewable energy developer that is able to utilize stranded and and wasted uh, methane resources that are not targets for for other types of developments. So I feel like you emphasize the word interruptible why is Uh that important yeah that's a great question so you know interruptible is is very important in this application because as we know so in in a landfill environment um you know gas production can be variable um there are when you're running a generator um there's going to be times where you have to bring it down for maintenance and there's there's oftentimes not going to be a lot of great backup solutions for for backup power, and so when you have a data load, you know if you're if you look at a traditional data center, like let's say Amazon or Google or any of these other large tech companies that would need a data center, this data would be considered mission critical, and so there you you generally speaking you you can't accept a you know you wouldn't be able to accept. 85, 90% uptime, because that would be bad if you were watching your Amazon streaming video and it went down, right? And so the company would never work with you and and be able to have you host their data servers unless you had, you know, three different backups for power and three different high-speed internet backups. And so in terms of um, again, populating these remote sites without any type of other grid connection. Um, that's, uh, you know, it's essentially not, not feasible. And so that's why it's important to have this, uh, this interruptible load, um, such as Bitcoin mining, because nobody really cares if that data load goes down for a specific period of time. And there's other, there's actually other really important ways that interruptibility comes into play specifically with, um, with EV adoption and electric or electric vehicle, uh, electrification in general, which, which we can get into a little bit later. Absolutely. Now, I think yesterday there was an article in the wall street journal titled a bad year for crypto is a really bad one for crypto miners. A quote from the article, average power prices for the largest users in Texas had climbed to 7.52 cents per kilowatt hour in June, uh-huh. up 41% from the same month last year, according to government data. How does your economic model prevent or uh-huh. save you from experiencing those spikes in electricity costs? Yeah, well, it's a good question. So for, for us, we are both a power producer and a power user. And so therefore, our our cost of electricity is basically the, you know, our baseline cost is the you know, the operations and maintenance of the generator, and then our, um, our purchase agreement for that landfill gas with the, the landfill or the municipality. And so that basically enables us to, you know, have a very low cost of power that will enable us to, you know, weather storms, let's say, in terms of, um, you know, Firstly, viability or variability in 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 sort of the Bitcoin market, but I think that also because we're again a power producer, we have other you know our our goal is not you know I, I, our goal is not to be a we're, you know so I I don't think it's va- it's not accurate to say that we're a Bitcoin mining company because we're simply using Bitcoin mining as a as a tool or as a as a stepping stone or we also like to think of it as a uh, a base camp on a mountain to be able to enable other uses of that electricity on site, which not only is, you know, participating in electrification of, you know, of the country or of the world in general, but also provides a hedge against um, just one form of revenue. And so those other, those hedges and those, those other targets of, of energy users uh, are things like again electric vehicle adoption, 
And then also all the way up through, you know, some sites will be in the future uh, viable targets for uh, for grid connection. Um, and you know, one of the one of the issues with developing a, a power plant is the the timeline required and the um, sort of the approval process required with the utility to get that site interconnected with the grid at large. And there's, you know, at least in California, there can be timelines of anywhere from four to six years just to get the approval for the for that grid to accept your power. And so in our case, we're able to have the site built up and generating revenue at the same time that we're going through the grid interconnect process. So in that four to six year window, we've already, you know, at least partially amortized or in some cases fully amortized the cost of the site such that we can then pivot into grid connect and and uh, have a potentially a lower margin off taker for that energy in the long term. Do you plan to offer any other kinds of compute capabilities? Yes. I mean, I think so. Again, it's important to have this, um, you know, interruptible data load. Um, in some cases, and in some sites, it, it will make sense to set up uh, other types of data processing um, that are, are more fixed and not variable. Um, the, but that would, that's going to require kind of additional capital expenditure and, um, and also, um, you know, sort of customer acquisition. However, we, we, you know, we take a market approach. So if there are, uh, if technologies come to be in the future that we can utilize in that, in that case, um, you know, we, we can absolutely sort of switch out the servers that we're using on the site to, to, uh, to something else besides the Bitcoin mining. Now, let's go back to the methane for a moment. For those that might be listening that aren't familiar, you mentioned landfills and methane. Can you paint us a picture of how the methane is extracted from the landfill and then perhaps the process of cleaning, upgrading and getting it to your facility? Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, you know, methane is a byproduct of the decomposition of organic waste in an anaerobic environment. And so typically when you, you know, it's called a landfill because you're essentially burying the trash underground. So rather than having a just an open air garbage dump, which is hazardous for other reasons, um, the United States and other developed countries use, uh, you know, sort of have these have landfills that are engineered in the sense that um, underneath the landfill is generally a network of piping that is connected to a centralized uh, blower system. And this blower uh, basically pr provides a, a negative pressure on the landfill. It essentially uh you know, it's essentially sucking on all of these pipes that are uh, perforated such that all of the, the methane that gets generated underground <clears throat> gets sucked out into, the, into this network of piping. And then the, uh, at the end of that pipe is either a flare, which, you know, just burns off the methane, or in our case, a, a power generation equipment. Um, on, the, on the flaring side, there are several kind of issues with flares with respect to um, emissions, not only of methane, but other types of emissions such as uh, nitrous oxide um, and, um, and uh, hydrogen sulfide. So, uh, you know, a, a flare is basically taking raw landfill gas and combusting it. So whatever other constituents are in that landfill gas are also going to be you know, essentially emitted into the atmosphere. Um, and not only that, in general, a flare is um, what's called an, an, uh, a candlestick flare, which is more or less exposed to the elements. And so if there's wind or rain or other types of environmental conditions, <clears throat> that flare can be, uh, you know, combusting methane at a relatively low efficiency. So there's basically a lot of you know, you know, up to, I've heard up to like 20 to 10 to 20% of that methane can escape past the flare in, in sort of inopportune conditions. So if you are instead putting that methane or that landfill gas <clears throat> into a generator, 
that generator is an enclosed environment and the combustion is happening in a enclosed chamber. And so therefore the methane destruction efficiency is much, is much higher. And so you have a, a very, a very direct and net benefit to the environment by combusting methane in a generator rather than in a flare. And then beyond that, you know, the generator is a sort of a sensitive piece of equipment and that requires that landfill gas to be cleaned before it goes into the combustion chamber. And so there's a filtration process that happens that filters out some of these contaminants that would otherwise be emitted into the atmosphere via the flaring process. Now, does your unit, I saw some pictures, I believe, it looks like a modular unit. Mm-hmm. Is the filtering process part of that modular unit? Yes. I mean, so, well, our, our units are composed essentially of three different pieces, and each of those pieces are independently modular. So the first piece is the, the gas conditioning and compression skid. So this is a modular unit that basically takes that raw uh, landfill gas and filters out some of the contaminants. So the main contaminants being siloxanes, which is a uh, a silicon component, um, as well as hydrogen sulfide. So once those contaminants are filtered out, the the landfill gas uh, will get compressed um, <clears throat> to either you know five to ten psi in the case of a, um, a internal combustion engine, or uh, would on our on our pilot site and some of the sites that we're building out now, we're actually using a turbine or a micro turbine approach which requires a compression up to about 80 PSI. So once it gets past the, uh, the first um, compression or the conditioning and compression skid, it goes into the combustion uh, chamber itself. So that's another module, modular unit, either in the form of an internal combustion engine or a microturbine. Um, that gets turned into electricity, and then that electricity flows into a, a modular data center. Um, so there's, there's three main components. Uh, each of those components are independently scalable and modular uh, and require sort of a very small footprint on the on the landfill itself. Now, you mentioned that there are approximately, let's say, 2,000 landfills that could potentially be a market for you. What kind of regulatory pressures are or will landfills be, pace, be facing in the future? Yeah, so there, the EPA um, has been taking a much more firm stance on landfill emissions in general. They passed a new law uh, at the end of last year or at the end of 2021 that basically uh, increases the uh, the threshold, or I guess decreases the threshold at which a landfill would be required to capture and flare their, their gas. And so this means that... Um, you know, so of those 2000 landfills that I mentioned that are targets for ours, some of those landfills are not doing anything with their gas and they're just basically venting it into the atmosphere. And so the EPA basically has said by 2025, you know, all of the rest of these landfills that are currently, you know, not flaring are going to be forced to capture and flare their gas. And again, these landfills are generally going to be on the smaller side and not going to be uh, targets for the traditional developers that are looking at, um, you know, natural gas refinement or uh, power production, and so therefore these landfills are going to be, you know, stuck with this large bill. Uh, and generally, these are smaller municipal landfills that are run by counties, and you know, these are these are places where there's not a whole lot of other revenue sources. Um, and so, as the EPA comes in with this what we call a, you know, a stick there, they have this regulatory stick to, you know, mitigate methane emissions, we we come in with a carrot, and allow these these landfills to actually get a return on investment um, on the on the capital that they've had to expend to meet these regulatory requirements. Now, can you give us a estimate of size of these landfills? The Small size ones. of the the ones that are going to be not uh or that are, that are going to be forced to put in the gas collection um yeah so i mean these are these are these can be quite large these landfills i mean the you know in terms of size um you know generally a small landfill would be accepting 
you know, anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000 tons of waste per year. Um, so this would be considered a, a small landfill, um, which is, it's still a, a, a massive amount of waste. And right now, at least, you know, there's not a whole lot of, especially in sort of smaller and more rural areas, there's not a lot of um, organics diversion programs that, that are, you know, seeking to divert organics away from landfills and into either, you know, biodigesters or into composting programs. And so, you know, these are, these are great programs that also help to reduce methane emissions over time. But, you know, even if we said, you know, we're going to all organics are, are all of a sudden 100% going to get diverted away from landfills, and that and all landfills are going to close each, you know, a landfill still has decades worth of methane that's going to be seeping out of them uh, that needs mitigation. And so, you know, we, we view this as a very long term problem um, that needs to be addressed kind of in conjunction with other uh, other types of methane mitigation uh, programs. Now, you mentioned closed landfills, I guess, landfills that have already been filled in. Yes. What kind of opportunity do you see there? And what does the feasibility look like for, from the availability of methane? Yeah, that's a great question. Closed landfills are a, a very viable uh, target for us. Um, you know, no other company, no other developer is really able to look at a closed landfill as a, as a viable opportunity, simply because there's a, you know, there's going to be a declining curve in, in that methane production. Um, but that declining curve is going to be on the order of 15 to 25 years. And so that, that alone provides it provides enough opportunity for us to make a substantial return on investment um, and be able to mitigate a, uh, you know, a problem that is, you know, going to be an ongoing liability for communities after their landfills close. When you speak to some of these rural slash county smaller landfills, and you're presenting an opportunity around data processing, perhaps the conversation around Bitcoin comes up. Mm-hmm. What's that conversation look like? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think, you know, a lot of a lot of places, you know, landfills are very, they're very aware of their liabilities. So they they know that, you know, they're, they're very experienced in their in their landfill operations and they're and they're, they know that there's not a lot of viable opportunities for their landfill gas. And, you know, one example of that is a landfill that we recently spoke to, um, kind of in a, a rural area in middle America. And they had had a, an RFP or request for proposal uh, posted for a year. And this landfill, this landfill is flaring about 700 cubic feet per minute of landfill gas, which is again, a fairly small landfill. So 700 cubic feet per minute of landfill gas, they had an RFP posted for a year, nobody bid on this RFP. Um, and they hired a consultant to help them try to find a viable use for this methane. And the consultant said, sorry, this is not a viable site for development. So the, this is this is the type of, you know, and, and obviously these are sort of looking at it from a traditional lens. Um, and so these are the places where we can make a significant impact. And so the conversations are, you know, mostly very, very positive in the sense that it's uh, very exciting for them to finally find a way of uh, utilizing their 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 methane emissions uh, for a beneficial uh, in a beneficial way, um, and also providing that that community with a with a revenue stream and in, in, instead of a, a net uh, financial liability. So let's talk about Bitcoin specifically. Over the last sure. couple of years, there have been several. Um, let's say mixed emotions regarding Bitcoin, depending on which side of the fence you fall on, headlines you follow, etc. When you mention Bitcoin to landfill operators, how does that conversation look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it, it's important to, to to sort of start the conversation from the perspective of methane mitigation and reduction of liabilities. Um, you know, it's it's it is it is the truth that you know Bitcoin has been fairly 
maligned in terms of, uh, especially from, you know, general kind of mainstream media outlets in terms of its, um, you know, electricity consumption. And it is true that Bitcoin and the, the, the sort of the proof of work process requires a lot of energy. Um, however, as we can, as we've proven and other similar companies like us, that that energy consumption and emissions uh, and net emissions are actually not necessarily related. And so in our case, because we're, we're utilizing something that is energy intensive, but also has the ability to be this um, decentralized, uh, interruptible monetizing load, it's uniquely, uniquely able to populate these stranded methane pockets or, or resources and, and help to monetize the destruction of them. And so in that, in that sense, Bitcoin mining can be viewed as a you know, non-governmental uh, carbon credit for mitigating methane. And so in this case, you know, it, you know, so in this case, our case, Bitcoin mining is in fact, not only is it carbon neutral, it's actually carbon negative because the, the methane is again, 25 to 84 times worse than carbon on a CO2e equivalency level. And so in terms of our conversation with the landfill, you know, our, uh, you know, people have heard of Bitcoin, but it generally doesn't, um, it doesn't perturb people because we're able to show that it can be used in this um, in this sort of beneficial way. Well, speaking of government, can you speak to the White House policy that came out, I think, three days ago, you mentioned earlier, we're recording here on September 13th. So I guess it would have been around, around September 10th. Yeah, so there was a, a recent um, report that was put out by the White House uh, Office of uh, Science and Technology Policy. Um, and so this this report was, um, you know, I think it was about 40 page, 40 page report on the the energy usage uh, and potential climate effects of uh, cryptocurrency mining, uh, specifically with regards to Bitcoin and other proof of work uh, cryptocurrencies. And um, they had a specific, a very, a very specific section in a, in a, in a well, you know, what I thought was a well-researched section that, uh, that stated that Bitcoin mining can be, uh, in, it, when, it, when it is used to mitigate methane emissions with respect to either landfills or, uh, or oil and gas uh, methane vents, that cryptocurrency mining is in fact a net positive for the environment and is uh, well in line with the administration's policies on greenhouse gas uh, reductions. And so this was like a very exciting moment for us to have, um, you know, Bitcoin mining, which has once, which has been recognized in the past. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not den denying that there are certainly examples of you know, dirty, you know, if you start up a coal plant specifically for the purpose of Bitcoin mining, that is, you know, 100% not a good use of, of that technology and 100% and you know, bad for the environment. But if you're able to show that Bitcoin mining, you know, provably can be used as these uh, as, a, as a way of um, facilitating methane destruction, you know, it's really exciting for us that that is, is, is in fact um, supported by, by the White House uh, you know, policy itself. Um, and so, you know, the more, the more companies like us that get into uh, methane mitigation, and not only from a landfill perspective, but, you know, oil and gas, uh, you know, vents or coal mine, old coal mines that are venting methane, that all of these are, are very viable uh, problems that can be addressed and, and helped to, to be monetized by virtue of, of Bitcoin mining. And, you know, if, a, if enough you know, based on our um, sort of growth potential and the amount of methane that's really, uh, you know, in the world and not, not only talking about U.S., but internationally, methane is even a worse problem in terms of uh, landfills and, and emissions. Um, but, you know, by maybe, you know, 2025, 2026, by virtue of our expansion alone, the entire Bitcoin network will become carbon negative. 
just by virtue of how much methane we're able to mitigate with the with our process. So do you currently have any pilot or production scale facilities um, in production? Yes. So we have a, a facility, um, we have our pilot facility that's under construction right now in central California. This is a municipal landfill. Um, it's going to be about one and a half megawatts, um, which is the equivalent. So it's it's currently flaring 650 cubic feet per minute. Um, so that, that equates to about 1.5 megawatts. And then in addition to that, we have another uh, 10 different sites that are in various stages of um, conversation. Uh, some have LOIs or letters of intent that are getting drafted. Um, so, you know, by end of 2022 and beginning of 2023, we should have a, a very, um, you know, sort of robust expansion um, that's that's being uh, undertaken. What stage is the pilot facility in? Um, yeah, it's it's under construction. It's both in construction, so there's you know physical equipment getting delivered to the site, as well as um, finishing the the permitting process. So when you whenever you and whenever you put a, a generator, um, even in the, even though in our case we're we're converting a flare into a generator, which is an as I mentioned a net positive uh, in terms of emissions, you still have to go through the paperwork uh, from an air quality district perspective uh, to get that site permitted. Um, and so we're probably about, um, you know, one to two months away from having that permit in hand. Um, and so we should have our site operational by uh, end of this year, early next year. Has the supply chain issues caused you any challenges regarding the mining kits? No, that's uh, not. I mean, we've, we've actually been able to um, benefit substantially from the recent um market decline in, in in the cryptocurrency market and we've been able to um you know scoop up some some pretty aggressively priced equipment as a result um and so i think that our timing has been fairly good in terms of you know building the company in a in a in a, in a bear market um but also being able to benefit from the um you know sort of the macro uh so, you know, push to to get methane mitigated, and then also the the report from the White House. So I think that our our timing with this company has been you know fairly fortuitous. It's great to hear. How did you make the transition, or how did you enter this segment of mining Bitcoin or data processing from methane, especially considering your background? You mentioned submarines, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've I've been um, so I've been an environmentalist my my whole life. I come from a long line of environmentalists. My my grandfather founded uh, an organization called the Oceanic Society here in San Francisco, which was dedicated to ocean conservation. Um, and so I've 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 always been aware of and and you know very much personally involved in efforts to you know mitigate climate change, um, both from a you know a donations perspective and a um, you know campaigning perspective. And so I've always, I've always wanted to, and I think this was somewhat reflected by my, my submarine career, but I've always wanted to sort of make an impact in my, our aha moment, um, was when I, so I was with my, my co-founder who is uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Joshua Glovin. We were, uh, we were on a walk. So both of us live here in Berkeley. We were on a walk, uh, with his dog in a, in a local park. And this park was, uh, it used to be a landfill. And uh, the landfill was closed in, I believe, the 1970s. It was covered over with with grass, and it turned into basically a you know a, an urban park uh, where they do festivals, and that's a great place to take dogs for walks. And in the middle of this park is a um, is a facility. So there's basically a fenced in smokestack, um, and you can and you can see. The, the the heat kind of shimmering off of this uh, this smokestack, and we were thinking to ourselves like, what is that? Why why is that there? And we got into reading more about it, and apparently this this landfill, which was closed in the seventies, is still producing methane emissions today, and those methane emissions need to get flared off. And you know the city the city of Berkeley had to pay you know a million dollars to put in this flaring infrastructure, and has to pay a certain, you know, several, like $100,000 a year for operations and maintenance. 
and we're thinking to ourselves like this is this is ridiculous this is you know firstly it's a waste of energy but second of all it just got us thinking about more about landfills and landfill emissions in general and seeing that you know landfills were sort of just not in the the public eye in terms of the conversation surrounding uh you know climate change and so digging in deeper and understanding the the, the just the, the the broad scope of the problem not only in the United States but also globally um, got us thinking about how we can how we can help to mitigate this and you know I've been a, a, a proponent of you know and a, and sort of a holder of, of Bitcoin I I understand the the sort of the the decentralized nature of Bitcoin and its role as a non-governmental monetary network and so being able to to put two and two together of you know utilizing uh, a high energy application in a decentralized role as a way of mitigating methane um just was was this aha moment and that was the the sort of the genesis of the company that was about uh, a year and a half ago so speaking of aha moments what's the most valuable lesson you've learned about yourself on this journey <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think our, I think the value, my my most valuable lesson is um, just understanding the sort of the the effect that waste has on humanity and and our just our our civilization as a whole. Um, you know, and and just sort of turning on or changing that that mindset to to understand that more deeply and how um you know how that is sort of the the biggest lever that we need to to fix in order to um to really get to a place where we can say you know boldly say that we're making an impact on on climate change and you know i think the the you know the us is just the start you know the us actually does a fairly good job at mitigating methane i mean i think there's still you know i think the in terms of carbon dioxide equivalencies there's uh, about 140 million tons of CO2e or CO2 equivalent C that comes from U.S. landfills. That's a you know a fairly sizable chunk, but that that amount is is even greater in uh, developing countries that have less regulations that are surrounding landfills. And so, you know, if you're in a developing country and there's no regulatory body that's telling you that you have to flare your methane emissions, and there's also no, um, you know, there's no, you know, let's say renewable energy credits or uh, renewable natural gas incentives. So the, these these incentives are very much, you know, nationally based, right? And so if you're a country that has none of these, what is going to be the, like, how are you you going to mitigate methane emissions financially, right? So there's no, Bitcoin mining, again, provides this non-governmental, um, essentially credit or carbon, you know, carbon credit that that incentivizes the destruction of methane anywhere in the world. Um, and so this is another kind of aha moment or things that I've, think that I've learned throughout this this process is just the, the potential that, that we have with, um, with Bitcoin mining used in this application. Well, speaking of potential and making an impact, let's fast forward 2030 or 2032, 10 years from now. Yeah. If your favorite publication, Forbes, Fast Company, Wall Street Journal, were to write a headline, perhaps even a small paragraph about Vespine Energy, mm -hmm. what would you like it to read? That's a great question. So <clears throat> I think that, again, you know, our, our end game is not to be a, a Bitcoin miner, right? We are, we're using Bitcoin mining. I think this is really important for people to understand is that we're, we're using Bitcoin mining as a tool. And this tool is helping us put together these self-sustaining microgrids that allow methane to be mitigated in a very efficient way. Um, but once those, once those uh, microgrids are set up, the, the end game is actually to participate in the, the broad electrification of grids in general. And so by what I mean by that is, <clears throat> let me give you an example, is that so landfills 
have a ton of vehicles that are interacting with them. So whether it be garbage trucks or normal trucks or even you know backhoes and loaders and bulldozers, there's a lot of vehicles. All of these vehicles currently are diesel, right? There's a, a big push by some very big companies and uh, and some landfill operators to move towards electrification of, of fleets in general. And the problem, which you know, is sort of the problem of global or more electric vehicle adoption in general, is one of infrastructure. So if I have a landfill and that landfill is, again, decentralized, remote, potentially away from a grid, that if I wanted to bring EV uh, charging out to that landfill, I would have to interact with the utility and have them build out high power transmission out to the landfill, install you know these these charging stations. And then now I have I've put in this huge sunk cost and now I you know I'm only going to be charging some of the time, right? You know, there's never going to be a time we're going to be charging 100% of the time. So it's going to be very difficult to achieve, to get any return on investment. So where we come into the picture is that we're able to support vehicle widespread vehicle electrification without requiring the grid interconnect right because we have the we've we've already electrified the site we have very high power generation in this in you know a small site for us would be one and a half megawatts so that's like more than enough to charge all of your garbage trucks um and what we have is a interruptible load and so now when, so if nothing happens and you're on day one, you're not charging any vehicles, all of that energy, all of that uh, emissions is getting soaked up and monetized by the data load, or in this case, Bitcoin mining. Then when you want to start adopting electric vehicles, you can then, and because again, because this load is interruptible, nobody really cares if it gets turned on or off. You know, a portion of that load then gets siphoned off into the charging. Once that vehicle is charged, that load flows right back into the to the mining load. And so, in that sense, Bitcoin mining becomes a essentially a balloon or a ballast that balances out the the charging of kind of as many vehicles as you want to be charging at any one time. And so, in this way, we're able to. You know, and there's a there's a massive impetus to be to be showing that hey, I'm using my landfill gas, which is a carbon negative source, to to charge my vehicles, and I'm not interacting at all with a uh, a grid or utility. And so this is kind of what we this is what we would want shown in. You mentioned you know if you want to write up in like 2030, this is what we would want to be focusing on is how we participated in the adoption of uh, electric vehicles um, in general. That was a great illustration of the ecosystem potential. Yeah, thank you. And I think, I think that's, another, that's another way that we, we like to think, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the ecosystem because that's exactly how we see the role of, of Bitcoin mining. And you know, Bitcoin mining, we think of it as a, as a pioneer species. So if you have a, a desert island and there's, no, there's nothing on it, right? It's just formed by a volcano. Bitcoin mining is like the lichen, right? It sort of comes out to this desert island. It's able to populate that island and in, in sort of the, the absence of any other uh, consumer. And then by, by virtue of it being there, it creates this layer of, of fertile soil that allows other users or other, uh, other, you know, other users in this case to benefit from, from that location. And so you know, the main one, the main sort of next layer on that in that ecosystem is EVs, right? If you also look at landfills and their, their locations, so not not only uh, as a site of electrification for, uh, for fleet vehicles, but if you also map their locations with respect to like major highways, there are, you know, landfills need to be situated near highways because you have to be able to like drive trash out and put them in the landfill. And so there is also a, a longer term play to utilize the decentralized nature of landfills as these sort of essentially batteries in the middle of you know rural areas 
but close to highways to actually to actually support uh, long term um, electrification of, of vehicles in general. And so having sort of public charging infrastructure and fast DC charging infrastructure that are that doesn't require a big grid uh, build out because we have those batteries in the form of landfills distributed in sort of opportune areas. Um, so that, that again is the next layer of that, uh, of that ecosystem. And then potentially the final layer of the ecosystem is ultimately, you know, grid interconnect. And by virtue of these other users being there uh, and populating it sort of allowed the grid interconnect to happen <clears throat> because the grid interconnect, if you had started at that point, it would have been not within reach because it's a, it's a lower margin. It's, uh, it takes too long, you know, five, you know, five or you know, four to six years. But by having these other users along the way, it sort of makes that finally actually a viable, uh, you know, a viable destination. So, I like that image. So, last question, and I know advice can be contextual, or it is contextual. But if you could share some advice, words of wisdom, it could be professional or personal with the audience. What would it be? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So you know, my assumption is that the that your audience um, is is you know very much cares about climate change and and does a lot of thinking about climate change, and so I think my 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 advice in terms of if you want to make the biggest impact, you know, in terms of if you're saying you know the the ratio of brain power to positive effect on climate change. That is the, the best way to maximize that ratio is by thinking about methane mitigation. And so, um, you know, wind farms are great. Solar is great. Um, you know, carbon capture from the air is great. Methane is a problem that we have kind of right now and it's right in front of us. And if there was more technologies like this out there, that can scalably mitigate methane emissions, that's, again, the biggest lever that we have or the most powerful lever that we have to slow down climate change. So I think the, the advice would be, you know, start thinking about methane a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that, Adam. Start thinking about methane. Great yeah. place to leave off. Yeah. Adam, I appreciate your time today and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Raj. Appreciate the time as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.